Hello and welcome to Extraordinary, the podcast that shines a light on ordinary people who have gone on to do and see extraordinary things. In this episode, I speak to Joe Binder, an incredible 25-year-old who runs his own personal branding company called WOW. Joe tells me about what it was like to experience YouTube fame while studying at Cambridge University and how it paved the way for a career in all things personal branding. It's a really insightful podcast and I learned so much from Joe and I really hope you do too. If you enjoy the episode, please do me the honour of leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe or follow to be notified of future episode releases. Enjoy the show. Hello Joe, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, James. How are you doing? Yeah, all good, thank you. All good. Such a pleasure to see you. This has been a long time coming. You were meant to be on Series 1. What happened? Well, things got very busy at work, and I realised I had to be more operational at the time before I could start doing fun things like podcasts. So I had to push this back, but I am honoured to be here. I've been looking forward to this and yeah, I'm ready to go. And I'm I'm honoured to have you. So thank you again for, for being here and taking part. So um, for those that don't know who you are or what you do, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. So my name is Joe Binder. Lovely to see you. Lovely to meet you all. Um, <laughs> I am 25 years old. I'm a Cambridge University grad and I set up a company called WOW three and a half years ago. We build personal brands for founders and CEOs on social media. We work with some of the leading business people in the UK, the kind of people that you see and watch on Dragon's Den, um, and then also lots of other very exciting businesses. That was really good. I feel like that was like a perfect elevator pitch. Have you done that before? Lovely. Thank you. Um, I've done it once or twice, (laughs) but I uh, appreciate the compliment. No worries. Um, so before before we move on, can I just like pick you up on this whole like wow thing? Because you don't spell it wow, like wow should be spent, spelt like W-O-W, you spell it W-O-A-W. Yes. Oh, and I, So I was panicking in my bedroom three and a half years ago, thinking that I've just onboarded a client for the very first time. I need to send them an invoice. I need to send them a contract. And our company doesn't even have a name at this point. So I was scrambling around for different ideas and eventually messaged my brother-in-law, who's a huge David Bowie fan. He's somebody I look up to a lot. Um, He's done very well in his career. And I thought, I need a name. Help me. What do I do? And he said, just name it after a Bowie song. You know, word on a wing. You know, that's copywriting. It links to what you do. Call it word on a wing. And I thought, word on a wing? Uh, No, Uh, but thanks. How about... W-O-A-W. And we squash it together, pronounce it well, let's go from there. And I've hated the name ever since. So it literally means nothing. More or less. I would love it for it to have a to have a meaning. And the David Bowie reference has been quite handy in pictures sometimes because you know when you get Bowie fans, they really appreciate that. But ultimately, that's where the name came from. You know, I've been searching for a wider meaning ever since, um, but haven't stumbled across anything. That's a cool story though, and it's perfect for for a podcast. So that's great. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so as I mean, I don't engineer it in this way, but I've had like a number of Oxbridge grads on the podcast, and I don't know if that's just because they produce really cool people or not, or I'm just like attracted to Oxbridge grads. Um, but can you just talk me through how you ended up at Cambridge? We all we went to the same secondary school, which in hindsight was 
very good at grooming people for Oxbridge. I sadly didn't make the cut, nor did I even want to apply, um, but I wouldn't have got in anyway. But was it something that you wanted to do from a young age? Like, where did the idea of Cambridge come from? Because in my head, it sounds like hell on earth. So I was never meant to go to Cambridge. I was the dumb kid at school. I was in set 3B, which was essentially set six, bottom sets for everything. Um, everyone would take the piss out of me. That was the banter towards me in our friendship group. If anyone were to take the piss out of me, it would be about the fact that I was a thick one who didn't get stuff. I was super slow and I was in bottom sets. Um, so going to Cambridge was never an aspiration. Um, it was only, I mean, I guess that journey started for me in year eight once I got fed up with people taking the piss essentially and knew that I could do better, wanted to do better, wanted to work hard, wanted to achieve. And so essentially I just started working my ass off. I was doing extra homework. I was filling my lunchtime with going to the school library. Um, I was actively reaching out to teachers and seeing how I could improve, asking them for extra feedback and so on. And once that happened, I kind of got a bit obsessed because I remember in science in year seven when I got, it must have been 23 out of 30 on the test. And when I walked up to the teacher's front desk to collect my test report, he basically said, this is really great. You shouldn't be in this set. And I was like, oh my God, that was like one of the best moments for me because I'd been working so hard for that. And I'd finally proved to myself that if I work hard, it will pay off. Um, anyway, fast forward years of just working, working, working. Um, I eventually thought about Oxbridge, um, landed on Cambridge, joined the Oxbridge group that we had at school where they would essentially help prepare you, um, answered a question awfully in front of around 30 or 40 people, ended up leaving the group, decided I wasn't going to apply and then thought, you know what, screw it. I'm going to do this. Um, I'm going to back myself. And then I applied, managed to get in. And then, you know, the rest is history. Wow. That's a very good story. I mean, so you, literally you were, is all, you were a self-starter. You generally had your eyes on the prize and you just did whatever you could to, to get there. Yeah, I think at that stage, you know, year eight, year nine, I almost had this weird relationship with my future self. I would create videos looking directly into the lens of the camera mm. and address it to future self. And I just wanted to make sure that when I was older, I would be in a position that I would have all doors open to me. I wouldn't have to pick from, you know, a really narrow set of opportunities, but I'd be able to essentially do what I want. Um, I've always wanted to be successful. I've always been ambitious. So, yeah, I guess once I kind of got the academic bug, I really went for it. Amazing. And and you chose to study geography, right? Yes. How did you land on geography? So it was between geography and French. I was obsessed with French. I would listen to French rap music. I organized um, kind of solo trips to France just so I could get involved with the culture and improve my language skills. Um, I was equally obsessed with geography. Um, I really loved the topics that we were learning about. I could see the relevance of geography on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, and it was essentially just picking between the two. And the final thing that did it for me was the realization that if I was studying French at university, it's essentially you know, studying English literature, but in another language is French literature. Um, and yes, there's a language side of it, but ultimately that's not you know a huge part. Um, and that was the part that I really enjoyed was the actual speaking French and being able to converse with, you know, so many more people. So then I 
essentially landed on geography, had some wonderful moments with my geography teacher um, where, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so for those who cannot see what's going on, James gave me a bit of a look there. That sounds odd. I apologize. I very concerned just now. Yeah. Um, essentially, I was really, um, really worried and concerned that I wouldn't make it to Cambridge, that I wouldn't be the right type of person to go there. And there were so many times with my geography teacher, Miss Ruzi, where I, I would essentially stay after the lesson and talk to her about applying and say, there's no chance I'm going to get it. What's the point? Um, I'm not clever enough. And she would basically reassure me and say, there are different types of intelligence. You're clearly, you know, book smart enough to get in there. You've got this, you've got that, you've got that. You know, there should be nothing stopping you. And she was the kind of person who really encouraged me to actually apply in the first place and go for it. So that's what I meant by uh, moments. That's a that's a lovely story. Thank you very much. And, and generally speaking, how how would you describe or how do you reflect on your time at Cambridge? Was it a positive experience? It was awful. No, I'm joking. It was uh, awful for the first month or so um, because you know what it's like. We come from an environment where everyone knows everyone. Mm-hmm. Everything is familiar and normal and you know what to expect. And all of a sudden I was thrown into a completely different world where I only really knew four or five people. Um, Culturally, it was completely different. You had to, yeah, I mean, it's essentially like starting school all over again. You don't really know people. You have to figure out who you are. Um, And I'm not very good at being involved with friendship groups. I don't like pretending that I enjoy things. I don't like laughing at jokes that aren't funny. Yeah. And what I found at the time was people would stand in these, you know, these five to 10 person groups and just, you know, one person would speak, everyone else would have a little giggle, which was clearly forced. I was like, oh, I don't want this. Yeah. You know, I want actual real friends. I don't want to have to pretend to be friends with people just to fit in. So I struggled with that a lot. Um, That's and- interesting. I, 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 as you were talking there, I kind of like saw myself in a lot of that. I, I, I often struggle with 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 groups um and forcing myself to like things but was there something particular about Cambridge because surely you would have had that kind of new environment no matter where you went for university I, I, I'm only asking because I feel like Cambridge and Oxford for that matter have particularly unique cultures and ways of doing things and it did, how was that adjustment coming from you know a, a state school in northwest London to creme de la creme of uh, education, educational institutions? Yeah, it's a, a good question because the social life there was essentially layered. You know, like other universities, there are lots of societies, but there are some <laughs> things that Cambridge take really seriously, like sports societies. Um, so if you're in a sports club, if you play sports, which I don't, then immediately you have a social sphere. Yeah. Immediately. And then you have drinking societies where... If you um, are that type of person and you want to join drinking societies and get involved with, you know, awful initiations and do all of the things there, which a lot of people do, then that's another sphere. That's another world. And I didn't really fit into any of those worlds. And then so you had those two spheres and I was like, not for me. Um, And then this other sphere, which was the general. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't find friends. What the hell is happening? You know, I'm not I'm not used to this. So that was that was a really challenging time. That's um, interesting. But then 
I don't know what year it was, uh, maybe your second or third year, but I'll let you explain. But you started um, a little side hustle. Can you talk us through what you were doing while you were studying? Yeah. So, I mean, in the first year, it was actually within a month of getting there, um, I started a blog, which was essentially like Humans of New York, um, which was created by Brandon Stanton, a photographer in New York. He'd essentially interview random people on the street, take a photo of them, find out their story through interviewing them for up to an hour and then take the best part of that story and upload that as a caption to, you know, to complement the photo that he took of them. And then that would be a social media post. And I thought, you know what? I had so many insecurities before coming here. I didn't think I was going to fit in. Why don't, you know, and now I've been here for a few weeks. I see that, you know, the vast majority of things I heard were a load of rubbish. It was all myths. And now I understand what it's actually like. Why don't I create a platform to, show other people who are experiencing the same self-doubt that I did, um, that it's not really the case and that, you know, you'll be fine once you get here. Um, so started that, it was called Students of Cambridge. Um, and then we managed to roll that out to people doing the same thing in Oxford. Um, and then also connected up some other universities. So that was my first kind of side hustle, I guess. Um, the next one was my YouTube channel. So I was a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk um, and loved just his basic concept of personal branding. Mm -hmm. And I already realized that I was a big sharer on social media. Um, and I knew that the bigger the audience, essentially the better. It's just another way of opening doors for your future self. So I thought currently my audience is on Facebook and Instagram and what would happen if I created a different type of audience which could actually be scaled and I could reach new people that I've never met in person but create almost you know a bit of intimacy with those people just through the content that I was sharing um and that's what a lot of YouTubers do it's the um I think the term is a parasocial relationship it's how you would look at you know Phoebe and Monica on friends and you would see them as your friends. You see them laugh, you see them cry, you see them go through, you know, life's trials and tribulations. And as a result, you really feel close to them. There's an intimacy, even though that's not shared, they don't know who you are. You have such a great understanding um, and a grasp of what it is to be them mm -hmm. that you, yeah, essentially feel like a friend. And vloggers do that all the time. There are loads of techniques to help do that. Um, but I thought, yeah, why don't I kind of, Sorry, so 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 that is like an engineered part of the content, or is it just a, a you know uh, a product of the content? Are they actually thinking I'm gonna try and build this parasocial parasocial? Is that the right parasocial? Term? Yeah, I'm gonna build this parasocial relationship with someone who doesn't know who I am in the hope that they deepen their engagement and like and subscribe and follow and yes, yeah, yeah, wow. Even if a vlogger doesn't set out to do that initially, there will be a feedback cycle that they experience and then they will do it more. For example, you know, once I was two months into vlogging and I uploaded a, a video with Cambridge in the title, instead of getting 300 views, that got 3000 views. I thought, oh, hold on a minute. People want to hear about Cambridge. If mm. I position my video through the lens of a Cambridge student, I'm going to get more views. So I did that and I clung to that. And all of a sudden I was getting 50, 60, 70, 80, 100,000 views on my videos because that was a positioning. Um, so that was intentional. And if we look at, you know, this idea of the parasocial relationship, vloggers, you know, some of whom start really, really young, have no clue about marketing or personal branding or anything. 
but they start and they see certain types of engagement continue to, to happen. They realize that if you speak directly into the lens of the camera and almost hold the camera like you're not putting much effort and you're treating it as like a Snapchat to a friend, all of a sudden it feels more real. Wow. And type of comments that you get are slightly different. You then realize that if you stop referring to your audience as you guys and you start to refer to them as you, because it's only really one person probably listening at a time, sitting on the train, sitting at home in their bed, watching a video, then that can start to build more intimacy. And you realize that if you give your followers as a whole a name that they can be a part of and a movement, um, I don't even want to tell you what the name of ours was, because again, it was awful. I'm terrible at naming things. But if you create a movement behind who you are, what your mm. mission is, then all of a sudden you get so much more engagement. So even if people don't set out to engineer these things, there's a feedback cycle where they start doing things naturally or they copy other vloggers and then they continue. Okay, and last question before I let you continue with your story. Is that not a problem? How like how do we feel about people semi-engineering types of, you know, fake relationships and knowing or understanding there's certain techniques to deepen engagement whether it's holding a mobile phone selfie style versus a tripod versus you know and I I get the whole point around titling and because you know that's BAU bread and butter SEO stuff you know Mm -hmm. I talked about on a podcast recently why I called it extraordinary with james wallace because if anyone's searching james wallace it's going to be much easier to find and extraordinary isn't so easy to find because there are plenty of podcasts out there called extraordinary um but i do worry about authenticity with these things and i and i just wonder if you can be authentic if you're constantly thinking about different ways and techniques of trying to deepen someone's engagement with your content I hear you. <laughs> and, it, it, you know, there's so much to explore in that world. Is social media healthy? Can it damage people's mental health? Mm. Uh, so there's a ton that could be said on that. Instead of going into that, I would just think about yourself. When you walk in to meet somebody for the first time, do you actively think about how you're presenting yourself? Do you actively give a firm handshake or in the age of corona you know make a fun joke around are you going to hug are you going to elbow touch what's it going to be do you actively present yourself in a certain way for most people the answer is yes so you could then say okay well if a personal brand is merely you know a representation or the online version of who we are in person then what's the difference but i i do hear your point it is definitely damaging um and it's a strange thing to think about. It really is, especially when you're somebody who mm. enjoys watching people on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was like, oh my God, all these people that I love. I mean, I just wonder, you know, is Gary V really Gary? Is that really Gary V? Um, mm-hmm. But no, you make a good point around in the real world. We also think we do also engineer how we present ourselves. So why should it be any different for the social world or digital world? So, no, that's fair enough. Sorry, I'll let you continue with your story because you were telling me about um, your YouTubing experience. Yeah, so um, had a good time with that. Um, Learned one of the most valuable things to date for me, which is just giving zero fucks, essentially. Um, Having to pennyboard down the main street in Cambridge holding a big uh, DSLR recording myself speaking into it while seeing all of the people 
look at me in my peripheral vision whilst having to be present for the person watching on the screen once I'd edited it and mm-hmm. uploaded it, that taught me a lot. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, don't care what people think, but it's another to actually give yourself clear kind of targets and experience in having to give zero fucks and having to go through that. It just builds up a tolerance and a resilience. So that was great. Um, and on that point then, did you get any uh, negative feedback? You know, your friends that were taking the piss out of you for being thick and stuff, were you um, you were you the butt of anyone's jokes when you launched the YouTube channel? Um, I'm sure I was. Not that much of it got back to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure there were screenshots onto WhatsApp groups and things like that, just because the way I approached it at the very start was super, super cringe. Um, it wasn't just me vlogging. It was me vlogging and trying to vlog in a style that I'd seen elsewhere. Yeah. And also trying to almost, not on purpose, but just dumb myself down a little bit. Um, and yeah, so it just it's, makes for very cringeworthy watching. Um, but, it, but it worked. I mean, at the time of recording now, how many subscribers did you or do you currently have on YouTube? Um, I think it's 22,000, but I've, I've had to private all my videos, which I'm gutted about. And I, you know, get messages literally every single week from people saying, can you re-upload this video? Can you re-upload that video? Because some of them were on, you know, over 150,000 views. Yes. Have you got proper fans? What do they call them? Like the Binder tribe? Like what's, what's the group? Back in the day, this was a name that I didn't want to say. Back in the day, we were called the Moss Gang. I remember oh, that. So I remember great. that. You were like, what's up, Moss Gang? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that yeah. is quite cringe. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's quite cringe to think about it. But I, I watched them. I watched them all just because I knew you. And I was like, you know, I'm significantly older than you. And I and I wasn't, you know, didn't sit there with envy. But I was like, you know, good on him for starting a YouTube channel. I mean, it took me till the age of 30 to start a podcast. So all in good time, my friend. And that's good. It's great to put your, yourself out there. Um, so you, you're you at Cambridge, you started a YouTube channel, you're doing really well, you're thriving. What was the, uh, what was the career plan? The career plan uh, that my, in my final year at uni was very much become a full-time YouTuber. I thought, okay, you're really into the marketing side of things. You like the process of creating content, do this full-time. And you can kind of growth hack your way up. Um, and again, there's massive value in having an audience. So that was the that was the focus. And what happened in reality? In reality, um, something I should have seen way earlier is that when I was at uni and I had a lot of work to do um, and I was really busy, I had content in that I could just take a camera around with me and film and then edit it up in a cool way and then upload it. Whereas after uni, the type of content that I would have to create to remain quote relevant um, would be entirely different. I didn't have that daily routine that I could just film. So I would have to go from a vlogger to more of a kind of content creator and think of ideas, film specifically just sitting down in front of a camera. Um, And it was a process of going through that and then thinking, okay, is this really what I want to do? that was when I kind of realized that, yeah, I've got to, got to do something about this. It just makes me think like how impressive these content creators are. Like so much time and effort goes into the production and the editing and the uploading and the distribution of of all this content. 
So it comes as no surprise that that was that presented a challenge to you after uni. So did that come as a did that come out a shock as a shock or had you factored in there was a chance that you might not be a YouTuber for the rest of your life? It was definitely a shock. <laughs> um, and it, it's so awful to say now because I just think, why the hell didn't you just think about what your daily routine would look like after? It's so painfully simple. But I was just caught up in it. Um, and, I, you know, in the final stages of uni, I was getting all my work done. And then getting really excited to be able to spend time recording videos or editing videos or doing something growth hacky. Um, and then, yeah, I just didn't give it enough thought. And did did that kind of attention and, you know, getting 150,000 views on a video, like what did that do to your kind of mental state? Like, How did that make you feel? So there's one part which is really, really challenging in that, especially if your kind of livelihood depends on it. So this wasn't me, but for people who do this as a career, it's it's not just difficult to get views and maintain an audience, but it takes a toll on your mental health big time because you are the product. It's not, you know, the quality of your editing. It's not the qualities of stories that you're telling. Ultimately, it's you, it's your face. It's, you know, your personality. So when a video doesn't perform as well, doesn't get as many views, the watch time isn't as good, it's literally a case of people getting bored of you. And then you go into this prangy mode where you're like, oh God, how do I stay relevant? How do I keep this audience? And, you know, I look at some of the content creators out there today and think, God, you are doing such a brilliant job that you're sticking with this because it's so hard. Mm. It's so difficult. And, you know, not to mention everything else that comes with it, like, platforms rising we have vine and then them dying and you having to migrate an entire audience elsewhere um the commercial deals the community you're trying to build the 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 ways you're labeling your content and uploading it online there is so much within that world and youtubers and influencers do not get enough credit for it Mm. maybe they don't get enough credit for it and you know being on the i also work in marketing so i appreciate that the production value because it is very high you know back in the day when youtube first started it was the user generated content was you know anyone could be and anyone still can be a a vlogger or an influencer but i think the goalposts are always moving and i i just see like really really high value production content you know these influencers are buying extremely expensive cameras and lighting and sound and they're a lot of them are paying salaries to photographers and videographers to literally follow them around i mean gary v has you know a salaried team of people and he's not there i'm sure there are plenty of them um doing it and so fair play fair play to them and i appreciate i appreciate and can understand why you didn't um carry on with it um so let's talk about personal branding because this is kind of what's you know this has become your your business this has become your career um in your own words, then, like, why is personal branding so important? It's a very good question. I would say at the moment, people spend almost probably more time online than they do elsewhere. You spend more time speaking to colleagues on Slack or Teams. You spend more time socializing with friends on WhatsApp and um, TikTok and, you know, looking at job opportunities on LinkedIn and creating a brand for yourself than you do actually conversing and being present. Um, And as a result, you need to 
give your online self essentially all of the tools that it needs to do the best job. That That is the main thing that I think encapsulates it. Then we have things like COVID, which has massively accelerated the trend towards our digital selves. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I would essentially sum it up. Amazing. And what are some of the typical challenges you would get when you tell people what you do? When I tell people what I do, I think it's changed a lot. Three years ago when I started the business and we were trying to get personal branding clients, people just thought, why would I want to why would I want to do this? What's the business value? What's the ROI? If I do this to my colleagues and leadership teams, what happens if we build up their profile so much that they then leave? Um, and it, those are the type of concerns. Whereas now when people come to us, um, it's pretty much, you know, done. They know that they want to invest in their personal brand. They have a good understanding of what that looks like. Mm. They know that in order to get people aware of them and following them, they're going to have to produce a lot of content, challenge themselves, get outside of their comfort zone and so on. So the concerns are more along the lines of, I'm quite British in the way that I act and behave. I don't want to be seen as boastful. I don't want to brag. But at the same time, I have all these achievements which are going to help me. So, you know, I need to reconcile the two. How can I speak about these? That's always one big concern. Another one is that, you know, I don't have the time. Social media is a full-time job. Community management, responding to people's comments. There's so much in there. Um, Another one is, you know, what is the actual strategy here? I don't know how to Mm. present myself in a way that's going to, you know, turn me into a thought thought leader. Um, I would say those are the three main concerns. That's interesting. And when I think of personal branding and the first person that comes to mind after Gary Vee, obviously, is uh, Stephen Bartlett, um, who is phenomenal. Like, I, I'm such a fanboy of his. Um, and but I, but I think of the, the ways that different people do it. And for him, it's doing quotes on Instagram, shareable, snackable quotes that resonate with lots of people and people take a picture of that it's very grammable content and there's really Mm -hmm. interesting quotes and stuff on LinkedIn and I'm sure a lot of people listening who who might be interested in upping their personal brand or doing something you know changing the way that they present themselves online people are not to echo exactly what the challenges are but people don't have quotes at their fingertips and they don't have access to Photoshop and they don't design it. And I'm just trying to think of what the ways in which a typical ordinary person working in a, in an ordinary office could do tomorrow to uh, improve their personal brand. Yeah. So first of all, Stephen Bartlett is brilliant. He's a masterclass in personal branding, but if your typical office worker were to look at his content and try to replicate that, it wouldn't really work. Because if you start quotes on Instagram and being quite authoritative in your tone, you should do this, you should do that. You you will only be successful if X, Y, Z. It just won't work because they're at completely different stages of the personal branding spectrum. This is somebody who has built a huge company in social media, employed hundreds of people, um, has done public speaking in front of... Um, tens of thousands of people around the globe, has a really successful podcast where he leverages off the brands, the individual personal brands of the people who come on there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's now a a dragon on Dragon's Den. So this is somebody who's done it and his content has changed and reflected that journey throughout. If you go back, you know, three years on Stephen's Instagram, for example, it's not going to look the same as it is now. So 
to your typical kind of office worker, I would first want to understand why they're doing this. Is this so their manager sees that they're doing a good job? Is this to help with their business development? Is this to build a long-term um, brand because they know that in two or three years they're going to leave the company and they're going to set up their own consultancy? Think about that. I would think about the people you want to be reading your content and what could add value to them. Um, now, this is the classic super cliche stuff. So this is adding zero value right now. Um, what you then need to do is figure out how you actually get their attention and help kind of help not shift, but kind of uh, align their perceptions of you in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are easy kind of hacks to do that. You know, one way is through association. So if you're somebody who regularly associates yourself with big brands or well-known individuals, that could be something that can easily be leveraged through photos, through videos with them, through articles with them. Um, similar to how you're interviewing some really great people um, on, on your podcast, if you could then take that a step further and segment that into lots of different types of content um, and make, you know, essentially snippets on social and that could be one route. That's Another hard. Route is, That's hard work. It takes so much time. Yeah. So I, much. Time. I don't have the time. <laughs> you don't have the time. Good excuse. So then you have the, you know, that's one route, which is essentially association. You have the another route, which is building in public, where essentially you can be as transparent as you possibly can within the confines and parameters of your job mm. and essentially document your growth journey. Talk about the books you're reading, talk about the people you're meeting, talk about the lessons you're learning, the mistakes you've made, and try to kind of not necessarily give advice, but just share your experiences along the way. You then have things like trend jacking, where you look at what is going on in the world. It's something you did brilliantly, I think it was a couple of months ago when Tesco announced or Tesco did an ad. I think the agency was BB. Oh yeah, that was pure luck. I smashed it. You smashed it. <laughs> smashed it. One of the first to post. Great engagement. Lovely, short, sweet caption. The yeah. photo said the rest of it. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, but that but that's luck. It's I mean, I was gonna ask you about algorithms. Like how much are you at the mercy of algorithms versus the quality of the content? I think this point is the same for most social media. All we need to remember is that each platform that we use is a business. And we are the essential as the user, we are what they sell. Mm-hmm. It's our attention. Their job is to keep us on the platform for as long as they can. So if you're creating content that makes people read it and engage with it and you know ask questions on it, then you're giving that platform a clear sign that the content is good. It's going to engage more users, keep them on the platform for longer. Therefore, they will push that out to more people. It's the same for YouTube, Instagram. Like That's... Yeah. In a nutshell, how it works. Of course, there are specifics, you know, down to the basics of not sharing a link within your post on LinkedIn, but instead sharing a graphic and posting the link in the comments. And, you know, the classic asking agree at the end of a post, agree question mark, do you agree? Things like that to kind of encourage people to comment because people know that if you're commenting, LinkedIn sees it's a good thing. They're going to continue to push it out. Um, this is so, like yeah. this is like GCSE English 101. Like ask a rhetorical question <laughs> to engage the reader and the audience. Like, yeah, it's common exactly. sense. Why do you mm-hmm. think? Why do you think people find it so hard? I'm sure there are ho- lots. I was going to say hundreds of thousands. There, there are plenty of people out there. Potentially, some people listening to this podcast that do want to start thinking about their personal brand, but for whatever reason, and I'm one of them, I'll admit, just can't do it 
there's some sort mm-hmm. of barrier to it. What what kind of in your you know running your business and in the world of personal branding, why do people struggle with it so much? People generally or specific to kind of entrepreneurs, both employees. consumers, business owners, founders, celebs. I don't know, whoever. Yeah. So first of all, they they're worried about how they're going to be perceived, whether it's on their WhatsApp chat with their friends or whether it's just their colleagues looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the time they know what they don't want. They don't want to look a certain way. They don't want to make people cringe, um, but they don't spend enough time thinking about what they do want. Um, another reason is the time that it takes. It takes a long time to create good content, a long time. And being consistent with that, when you've got you know a full-time job, um, it's really difficult. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's another thing right there. <clears throat> That's fair enough. And um, how would you describe your personal brand? Oh, good question. Um, I'm not sure. How would I describe my personal brand? I would say young and ambitious business person, st- still figuring it out. That's Hustler. how I would. Uh, Just that. Yeah. Point. Exactly. There's a lot more that I need to be doing, and I'm very excited to do to do. Um, and yeah, I mean that comes down to. The fact that people have jobs, people are busy. Um, I've got so much planned for my personal brand. There's so many things that I want to do. But, you know, we've got a business and we're hiring two people at the moment. And, you know, we've got a load of clients and things come up and there are people within the team. That there's always so much to focus on. So it makes it difficult to focus on just one thing. Mm. And I've seen over the years, you've like documented those kind of bumps in the road um you know the difficulties with recruitment you know growing a business what like learning from your failures and you know is that all part of the plan when it comes to the personal branding um do you mean is it have I made the active decision to share that kind of stuff yeah yeah exactly so when I mentioned earlier we have the kind of association the trend jacking and then the building in public this is very much you know a nod towards the building in public aspect um I know that I'm a big fan of entrepreneurship. I have a lot of respect for people who start their own side hustle, start their own business. Um, I like talking about that. Um, and I know that that could be helpful to people. So that's you know, something that I talk about. Mm. Amazing. So let's talk a bit more about um, owning a business in your 20s then. Uh, because you actually, we were talking just before we came on air and I asked you if you'd ever had a job. And you were like, well, yeah, kind of for, for a little bit of time. So you're now 24, did you say? 25? 25. 25, God. Just turned 25. Old man. Oh, yeah, of course, I, I saw. You had a little birthday celebration recently. Um, so, but, you know, for your whole entire, I don't know, four, five-year career, you, um, you've only worked for yourself, really. Um, how have you found your place in the in the working world? It's been difficult, and I realised that sometimes it's not as simple as learning from a mistake, but having to make the same mistake a couple of times, um, which can be quite frustrating for the people that you work with. I think that's one side of entrepreneurship that people don't really discuss. You know that first hire, the first person you bring onto your team, you've got to really brief them on the fact that you've never managed anyone before. 
you know, there, there's nothing concrete at that stage about the business. There is no infrastructure whatsoever. You're very much in the stages of trying to build rather than you know really building or even scaling. So that was what, I mean, that essentially encapsulates all of it. It's just having to learn and learn and learn and be really transparent when you screw up. Do you ever, is there a part of you that just wishes you had a nine to five and you were paid a salary and you got 20 days annual leave and you got to go on holiday and not really think about the next pitch? There are times I've definitely felt that. So God, how easy would it be to just, yeah, have have a time of the day where I can stop working and go on holiday and not check my phone constantly and, you know, just know that I have somebody telling me what to do. Mm. There's been so many times where I just, you know, don't know the answers and I don't know what to do. And I know that I need to know what to do because now, you know, as an employer, people's jobs and livelihoods are literally depending on the company which I run. So there's a lot of pressure to that. Mm. Um, But ultimately, I always, you know, go full cycle and then just think, actually, this is brilliant. I really, really love this. And sure, you know, it would be easier if I had a job and if everything was laid out and I had a clear job spec, but ultimately that's not what I want. Do you, do you like the idea of being a leader, a business leader, or do you actually just prefer getting on with the business? Um, it's definitely growing on me. It's definitely growing on me. I enjoy it now. You know, every day I come into work, we're either in Camden or in Soho and I'm just surrounded by people who are just genuinely fun to be with Mm. We have a lot of fun. They're all such nice, good people. And then they're obviously bloody good at what they do. Yeah. So I get to learn noise from them as well. Um, so, yeah. But do you feel like you always, because I remember Stephen Bartlett talks about this in his book and how he feels, you know, he didn't say it in these words, but he almost described a time which he has to always like protect his employees and his team. And like, if he can't have a bad day in front of them, it's like bad for morale type type thing. Do you always feel like you have to be bringing the energy on good form? You know, if you have a bad day, they'll have a bad day. I feel that way more so now than I have done in the past. Mm. Just because, again, it's just about the learning. I've had to go through the process of oversharing with teams. And when I thought, you know, something bad could happen with a potential client or with a business... I've, I've now been through that a few times to know that there are times to communicate things. Sometimes you have to let things run through. Sometimes you need to wait until something is absolutely confirmed to then let people know. Yeah. And it's on you. If it's stressful for you, that's fine. Go speak to somebody else about it. Speak to a partner, speak to a friend, but don't burden, you know, someone on your team with a stress that they can't do anything about. It doesn't change their daily. Yeah. All it would do was add anxiety to their to their mind that's a good that's a good little nugget of gold there um so so what does a good day what does a good day in the life of joe look like i would say i would wake up early um maybe 6 30 6 20 i get out of bed straight away i don't snooze my alarm um get to the office grab a pret caramel cappuccino thank you very much um and then i'd walk over to the office, set down, open up my laptop. And then from there, it's just about thinking, what are we trying to achieve? Where are we trying to go? And then trying to execute on that. So if it's about, you know, 
growing the team quickly. I may be looking at hiring. If it's about growing my personal brand, I may be looking at speaking opportunities. Um, if it's about new business, I may be liaising with existing clients, um, seeing if we can expand our campaign, get more people involved with the campaign or chasing new clients. A good day is a day that has good ban, good chat with the team um, and also has some kind of progress, some kind of development, um, often on the business side. That's what I tend to get really excited about. That's great. And, and do you find yourself being able to switch off at five, six o'clock, whatever time you decide? Like, No. No. I would love to say yes, but there are times when I've been able to like completely switch off for a bit. But for the most part, you know, it's it's a yeah, pretty much twenty four seven thing. I dream That's about work. I've had nightmares that clients have left us. Like this is a while ago, to be fair, when I was much more paranoid. And it turns out, you know, a year and a half, two years later, those clients still haven't left us. But I've had literal nightmares where I woke up and I was like, oh my god, it's crazy. Um, it's mad. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's not good. I think that's more of a reflection on me being a bit, or th- that I used to be a bit paranoid. But thankfully, I don't really have those nightmares anymore. I can imagine. I mean, I mean, there's there's a reason why. I mean, if it was easy to run your own business, I'm sure more people would be doing it. But you know, all those kinds of paranoia, anxiety, sleepless nights, you know, not being able to switch off just isn't for everybody. Um, and you know, frankly, it probably shouldn't be for, you know, you shouldn't be feeling like you have to do that either. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't run a business, so I don't know. Um, but there are loads of stresses in your job, right? Oh, there are huge. Oh yeah. I, I mean, it, it's like common knowledge that anyone who's employed, like when we go for drinks or whatever, you're at dinner, your friends would be like, don't you just wish you could like run a beach bar in the Caribbean? I mean, I don't know how many times someone said that to me. <laughs> um and just like live the simple life but yeah no of course every day is stressful um but again you know if 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 you do something i i personally do love my job and i love who i work for as well so i i i know that there are good days and there are bad days and you have to go with the flow as it is yeah exactly so um i've asked you to prepare a letter to your younger self Yes, uh, which I am very excited for. I always get so excited when I when I come onto this section. Um, is that something you have done? It's something I've done. It's a bit cringy. Um, no, it's not. Nothing can be done about that. But I can uh, read it out to you. I can go for it. That would be that would be amazing. Well, before we, before you do that, how did you find writing it? Was it like a nice experience? It was. It was an interesting experience because it's almost a bit bittersweet in that there's something wrong with me where I know that, you know, I'm never going to be truly satisfied and proud of what I've done. But then there's another side of me which sees the progress that I've made. So it's kind of battling between those two thoughts. Um, but yeah, and then again, also it was a bit therapeutic. Hugely, it's hugely therapeutic. Yeah. Such a great experience. Okay, well, um, in your own time, when you're ready, I'd love to hear it. Sure thing. Dear 12-year-old Joe, you probably just came home from school feeling a bit small because someone took the piss out of you for being in bottom sets. Don't worry, I know the feeling. Yes, you might be in bottom sets of the class for everything at the moment, and people might laugh at you for um, your not-so-amazing test scores, but don't get hung up on it. 
because any day now, all of that teasing is going to instill in you a newfound motivation to prove yourself. Maybe you'd even call it a complex, which will stay with you. But the name doesn't matter. The result is the same. You're going to start working really bloody hard to prove yourself and to prove them all wrong. It might not have much of an effect at first, but after a few months, your results will improve a little. A few years after that, you're going to get a load of GCSE scores that you would never have dreamt of. And a few years after that, you'll be graduating from Cambridge University. So hang in there and here's to hoping your next exam goes badly. Love from 25-year-old Joe. That's so interesting. I really thought you were going to talk more about um, the business, but you talked more about your school life. Do you think that's um, affected who you are today? Absolutely. I have a massive inferiority complex. I'm never going to be good enough. And I kind of, I'm coming to terms with that. But I definitely think that started when I was younger, around the time when I was in bottom sets and everyone was taking the piss. Um, And that's something that I always, I I think I always have on me. And there are pros to that in that it means I, you know, aim really high, work really hard and hopefully achieve alongside that. Um, But the cons are that, you know, first of all, it's difficult mentally um, and everyone wants to be happy. And when you recognize that your happiness only lasts for quite a short burst of time when you achieve something and then you're on to the next thing, Mm. then that can be a challenge. But it's something I've kind of come to terms with. Um, and at the moment I'm pretty okay with that. Well, that's amazing. I mean, I was going to ask you a couple of questions about that, but it sounds as though you've already done the reflecting. I just wonder if, you know, could you be at risk with an inferiority complex, always chasing something that doesn't actually add any value to your life? I mean, are you doing it for the sake of it? You know, I'm not saying you felt inferior so you got really good grades and ended up at the one of the best universities if not the best university in the world you know or you felt inferior so you needed to start your own business versus being employed but like where at what point does that stop and you and you take stock of things and say actually I'm satisfied and I'm at peace with what I have and what I have achieved I don't know that there's a fear inside of me that if I suddenly come to terms with everything, I'm going to lose my ambition. And it's something that I really don't want to lose. It's something that's really, really important to me. I almost feel like if I suddenly am, you know, calm and happy and content, then I'll become a bit complacent. So something I need to work on. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because I don't necessarily think you can associate ambition with achievements. You know, you can be perfectly ambitious and have the same job for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe that's a podcast for another day. Maybe. Getting a bit philosophical. Anyway, Joe, listen, that was so, so insightful. I learned so much and got to know you a little bit better. And I hope that everyone listening enjoyed it. Where can people find you if they want to find out a little bit more about who you are and what you do? They can find me on LinkedIn, type Joe Binder, and I have a bright blue profile picture or they can find me on instagram they can type joe binder 96 and they will find that same profile picture <laughs> consistency matching luggage i love it consistency ones yes okay joe lovely to see you looking forward to seeing you in real life very soon um all the very best and thank you once again james thanks so much for having me my pleasure see you soon bye bye Thanks once again, Joe, for coming on. I truly learned so much and I'll definitely be taking some of that advice forward. Until next time, take care and I'll see you soon.